Hello and welcome to this sixth podcast brought to you by the Vatican Observatory Foundation. I'm your host, Bob Tremblay. With us today is Chris Graney, Public Relations Officer for the Vatican Observatory Foundation and the editor of the Faith and Science Resource on the Vatican Observatory's website. Chris is the author of several papers and two books from Notre Dame Press on the topic of science during the time of Galileo. Also joining us is Brother Guy Consolmagno, Director of the Vatican Observatory and President of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. Let's get into it, Chris. All right. Glad to be here. And I can't talk enough about science in the 17th century. Science in the 17th century, uh, this is Brother Guy, has shaped an awful lot of our understanding of what science is. Galileo was a great philosopher of science, along with being a great scientist, even if he didn't always follow his own rules about how science should be done. So one of the questions I have here is, what surprised you most about Galileo and his history? Well, I think what surprised me the most, and here's how I got into it. I was studying philosophy at the Loyola University in Chicago and living in a Jesuit community with a historian who was teaching a class about how to do history. This is a seminar for seniors who are going to be history majors. And it's not just this is history, but this is how you go about learning history. And he used Galileo as the example because he says, Galileo, there's this wealth of primary literature. You can read what Galileo wrote. You can read what his opponents wrote. There's another wealth of secondary literature, people describing and put it into context. And there is what he called tertiary literature, the sorts of things like, you know, the Bertolt Brecht play that everybody's familiar with the theme, even if they've never seen the play, which often has nothing to do with Galileo and everything to do with when Bertolt Brecht was writing the play. And he said that the contrast of the three are great, but guy, come on along and maybe you can add some astronomy. The thing that shocked me the most about Galileo was how familiar he felt. Even though he didn't have our modern understanding of what science was, even though he didn't understand that science tries to show rather than prove, and that science is always open to refinements and saying, maybe I was wrong, which Galileo was never open to saying, what he was was a popularizer in the same mold as, you know, Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, with the same benefits and the same flaws. There are probably a generation of people who got interested in astronomy by reading Galileo's books when they were kids, and wound up with a lot of misconceptions about how astronomy works, just as, you know, I've got a lot of friends who learned about astronomy from, in my generation, it was George Gamma, 123 Infinity. And the thing I've noticed is that the people of Gamow's generation back in the 50s hated Gamow, but the people my age who read him as a kid thought he was wonderful. On the other hand, in the 70s, we were really jealous of Carl Sagan and made fun of him behind his back. But the people who were kids when Sagan was on TV are the ones who became the astronomers of the next generation. And this is a pattern, this sort of popularizers who make things too easy, get a lot of grief from the people in the field and yet are phenomenally important to generating the field. And Galileo was just like that. I think what I found most surprising is echoing what Guy said, but in a different way. I learned about the Galileo story as sort of this scientist stands up against, you know, that Einstein has something about that he wrote about, here's a man who stands up for truth against the hosts of those in clerics garbs who would keep everybody in darkness or something like that, some sort of thing like that that he says in a famous introduction to uh, Galileo's dialogue on the two world systems. And what surprised me is when you actually start reading the works of the people who opposed Galileo, just how dynamic and fascinating a scientific debate was going on at the time. In fact, it was very much not like that 
that it was just an outstanding example of people debating a scientific question. Is the earth moving or is the earth not moving? And there will be references to scripture because, you know, there's sort of an idea that if you can't decide this one way or another, we're going to stick to our, you know, traditional interpretations. But the bulk of it is what's being observed through a telescope. How do we interpret this? What can you do with it? What can we physically expect if the earth is rotating? And there's great stuff on both sides of this debate, which the fact that it's sort of taken on this mythological good guys, bad guys tone is not really, I don't think that good because I think it has set up a paradigm that people look at to sort of cloak themselves with whenever they're standing outside the norm, right? They say, well, you can always say, well, you know, I believe that, you know, little green men live on top of Mount Everest and they're running the world and all the scientists are against me, but I'm like Galileo. I stand up and tell the truth. And I think that that is a problem that science faces, that it'd be better for science if people understood that, no, from the very beginning of modern science, it's been dynamic debate arguments on both sides. Here's how science really works. If you have a really stupid idea in science, it actually doesn't tend to hold up very well because the evidence will go against you. So to see this dynamic debate in play, something I wish more people understood. One of the great resources I could recommend to people, which I got from this course, was a book put together by a historian named Fiducciaro called The Galileo Affair. And the bulk of the book is all of the key writings translated into English including the transcript of the trial. And you can see that Galileo was not fighting these. He kept, you know, he kept trying to squirm to get away to be able to sell his book again, because that's how he made money was by selling books. So that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. I'm glad you brought that up. What are some resources for educators to help teach the story of Galileo correctly to their students? I would start with that book, The Galileo Affair. And then of the many different biographies I've read, the Heilbrunn biography, I think is pretty up to date and I found very readable. There's a nice book called Galileo in Rome by Shea and Artigrass that tells of Galileo's interaction with people. It's a more human story because my interest is always tends to be for the more scientific and technical stuff. But nonetheless, I will caution that it is very difficult to find something that gives an, you know, why do we care about Galileo? Okay. I mean, did the church condemn him? All right. Was he excommunicated? Okay. Well, first of all, he wasn't excommunicated. He was no. condemned. But you know what? I'm working for the Vatican Observatory. I don't want to say that the church does a bunch of stupid stuff, but you know what? The church is run by fallible human beings. They've been a big, powerful organization. They've stepped on people in time. It's not a good thing. But, you know, my diocese is the first inland diocese west of the Appalachian Mountains. Our bishops own slaves, okay? That's not a good thing to do. And being enslaved is a lot worse than being the favorite mathematician of the leader of Tuscany and getting in some trouble and been put in house arrest. So why do we care about Galileo, we if, care about it because of if science. You want, if you want to dump on the church, there are way worse Many things, things the church has do. done than Galileo. Right. So the, the reason that he is singled out is because of science, right? Because this is a matter of science. And so finding a resource that really lays out what's going on in the science of that time, that is a challenge. Because let me tell you, if you're reading something where it makes it look like, you know, one person's smart and one person's stupid, you're probably reading something that doesn't have the story right. Again, it was a great debate. I'll also point out another book, if you just want to know Galileo as a human being, Galileo's Daughter by David Sobel. 
I think she does a great job of making him a human being with both kind of strong personality that would attract enemies, but also attract people who loved him dearly. And this is who he was. And among the people who loved him dearly were devout churchmen. And among the enemies were people who are also mad at the church. The interesting thing about Galileo is that, first of all, he was never excommunicated. Secondly, he never served time in jail. You know, he was served house arrest, and that was it. The third thing is, what he was found guilty of was not heresy, but vehement suspicion of heresy. And that's because at the end of his trial, which was a special trial, wasn't you know a regular sort of thing, it was a, a committee of 10 people, of whom three voted on Galileo's side. At the end of it, he said, you've never shown that I was guilty of heresy, merely that the things I said could be interpreted that way. And so they said, okay, we find you guilty of suspicion of heresy, which is kind of an odd thing. And then his famous statement when he says, I'm sorry, he says, I reject anything and everything in my work that is contrary to the teaching of the church without specifying any of what those things might have been. It was almost Jesuitical, dare I say. And, and I think that there's just a, I'll always come back to the science in this, that the reason that people care about Galileo is because of this idea that somehow it's about science, right? That we care about this guy who was treated poorly by the church and others who are not so famous because of the science. It was a very cruel time. There's a famous illustration of London that I will point out in these kinds of discussions. London in 1615 or 1610 or something like that. And it's a panorama and it shows in the panorama is London Bridge. And if you look at the end of London Bridge, there's about a dozen to two dozen heads stuck on spikes at the end of the bridge. And, you know, it was a time where when you got on the wrong side of the wrong people, it was not a pretty picture. You know, a lot of people were treated poorly in the 17th century. Why is it that we care about Galileo? Well, we think we care about it because it's about science. But the more my research goes into it, the more complicated that science story becomes. And this is a very hard thing to talk about. There's people who sort of have these passionate ideas about Galileo because what they have passionate ideas about is a story. They don't have passionate ideas about what, if they actually knew what the arguments were at the time, you know, they would be, oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't buy that. But they don't. People think that it was a guy who stood up, looked through the telescope, saw that the earth was going around the sun. People refused to look. They refused to acknowledge the truth. Then he was condemned for discovering truth and, you know, burned at the stake or something like that. And that, None of that is true. No, yeah, it's not anything in that that's correct, you know. And yet it is unfortunately repeated even today in very reputable sources. You know, what can you do? How do you deal, how do you deal with this? And another thing to remember is that the times really were such that ideas caused wars. People went to war, at least used the ideas as an excuse to go to war. The Thirty Years' War was going on during the time of the Galileo trial. The most crucial battles when it looked like the uh, pro-Spanish side, who had troops in Rome at the time, you know, the pro-Spanish side was losing just about the time that the Pope decided, maybe I should put Galileo on trial. And there are some historians, others who dispute this, but some historians that say, ah, the Galileo trial was a distraction 
to get the Spanish off the back of the Pope because the Pope was secretly favoring the French who were secretly favoring the Protestants in the Thirty Years' War. In other words, it's a terribly complicated story. The science is complicated, the politics is complicated, the personalities are complicated, and to turn it into a simple myth of good and bad and right and wrong doesn't do justice to any of the people involved, including Galileo. But we do love that story. People love a good guy, bad guy story. But working out that history and communicating that to the broader public is, I find, an enormous challenge. So Chris, in our last podcast, you mentioned that you can translate Latin. What exactly did you do to study Galileo with knowledge of Latin? What do you mean? You mean, how did I get the knowledge of Latin or? Well, you, you went somewhere and read some texts. Um, yeah, I, I went to a computer and I read some texts. I went to Owensboro Catholic High School in Owensboro, Kentucky, where I had Father Pete Lozon, I think, taught me two years of Latin. And I still had the Latin book and a Latin dictionary from my high school days. Look, this started... Sky and Telescope published an article by a guy named Leos Andra, who spoke of Galileo being the first person to observe a double star, that he observed Mizar. And without going into the technical details, he had Galileo's notes, Galileo's notes about Mizar. And Galileo says, they're this far apart, and he was like dead on, on his separation, extremely precise measurement. And he said, one looks this big, the other looks this big, and based on their sizes, I'm calculating the distance to them. And he says that this one's 300 astronomical units away. And I looked at that and I was like, that ain't going to work, right? You can't, if Earth's going around the sun, a star can't be 300 astronomical units away. And I actually wrote Sky and Telescope a letter and said, hey, there's something weird going on here. Somebody's got to investigate this. Nobody did. And in, my, in the last podcast, I talked about my students and how they brought me with all these kinds of questions. And so it's like, somebody's got to answer this. And so break out the old Latin book, start it up. And meanwhile... You can find all of these old texts on, guess what, Google Books, library sites. There's a big library site called erara.ch out of Switzerland. It's got all sorts of different texts and stuff put online. So I don't have to go to an elaborate library somewhere and pour over these texts. You can pull them up on your phone <laughs> and see uh, Riccioli's Alma Gestum Novum. I did a translation of Johann Georg Locher's Mathematical Disquisitions, which is a book that Galileo spends a lot of time making fun of in his dialogue concerning the two world systems. If you read the dialogue, it's, it sounds like Locher's an idiot. If you read Locher's book, Locher looks pretty darn sharp, you know, and in it, so Galileo really mischaracterizes this guy, which is part of how, how do you make friends and influence people? You insult them and paint them to be idiots when they're not, right? So you look at this book, and I've translated it so you can read it and judge for yourself. Was Loker an idiot? And I think you'll say no. But in it, Loker references all these different texts all over the place. From This is book, a book written in 1614. I was able to find every single one of the books he references online, on Google Books or on a library website or something like that. It was like I had access to the greatest library of rare books in the world. So it's, it's thanks to the internet. As people who know me may find that ironic because I'm not a very tech-savvy person. I tend to screw up everything I touch, but it's the internet and my old high school Latin and a lot of stubbornness. And my wife, who has some talent for sussing out grammar and how to make take a, a Latin science sentence that's 250 words long and translate it into something intelligible. 
Since I have jokingly referred to my uh, smartphone as the tome of all knowledge, and I guess it actually is. Yeah. One of the things that makes it work, of course, is that uh, between Chris and Tina, they've got both the language and the science. So when they see the words, Chris can say, ah, this is what he's talking about. Yeah. And too many people who have translated the Latin haven't understood the science that they were trying to communicate. I would say overwhelmingly, people who understand the science of astronomy are not people who can read Renaissance era or medieval era Latin. And people who can read Renaissance era medieval Latin have no idea what they're talking about in the science. And so that's what's worked out. I've been able to translate some interesting stuff. So you have no peers. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that, but I can point out another, somebody else who's done this very recently, Albert Van Helden. A few years ago, we had nothing translated of Galileo's opponents, nothing. So you could get English translations of Galileo. You could hear what Galileo had to say about his opponents. And like I said, he doesn't all, he's not always real flattering. Back in his time, his opponents could speak for themselves. Now people can't read that stuff. But I have translated an essay by Francesco Ingoli, who Galileo believed was highly influential in the church's condemnation of the Copernican system in 1616. That's in one of my books from Notre Dame Press. I've translated Loker and Shiner's book, which is the book that Galileo spent a bunch of time insulting in his dialogue of the two world systems. And Albert Van Helden has built on a, there's a partial translation of Simon Marius's The World of Jupiter, which talks about a variety of things in astronomy, mostly Jupiter, but not exclusively. And that has been published. So within the past five years, three anti-Copernican scientific works have become available in full translation. Now, the question is, is people who are writing about Galileo, are they going to read them or are they simply going to restate the same myths that have been kicked around for a very long time? You know, and I think that's a question because I can point to a number of books published since these translations have been out that ignore what the other side had to say scientifically, which, again, is actually not nearly as dumb as Galileo makes it out to be. They were wrong, but they were not stupid. You know, they weren't even wrong. They were right for the knowledge of their time. You know, Newtonian physics, for example, had not been developed yet. So if they're going to talk physics, they're going to talk about the physics as it was understood then. And they don't say stupid things in doing it. To give an example, we all learn that Newton is the one who came up with the idea of explaining an orbit as a sort of continuous fall around the Earth. We learned this in school. Well, guess what? Loker and Shiner they do not agree that the Earth is going around the sun. Nevertheless, they come up with a physics to explain under Aristotelian logic how Earth could orbit the sun by purporting that it could be like a perpetual fall. So they're there over 100 years before Newton is. So I have a question. You mentioned Galileo looking through a telescope, right? Weren't they spyglasses at the time? He can't have been the first one. I mean, they were used on sailing ships all over. Some schmuck must have looked up at the moon and said something about there's got to be a reference somewhere. Well, it's kind of interesting because we actually have Galileo's lenses and, you know, his telescopes. They're in the Galileo Museum in Florence. A couple of things that Galileo had going for him was he was at the time working in Venice. And even then, Venice was the center of glassmaking. In order to have lenses that work, you've got to have 
good glass that is uniform from one end to the other, that doesn't have bubbles in it, that doesn't have things interfering, that was rare at the time. You have to have enough glass that if you make try to make 100 lenses and you know 90 of them don't look very good because you're still figuring out for yourself how to grind a lens. Okay, everybody listening to this podcast, you're so smart. Do you know how to grind a lens from a blank piece of glass? Right, using hand tools for available in the 17th century, you know, have, have a good time of doing that, you know. Yeah, and it's not on the internet. You can't look it up. You got to figure yeah. it out for yourself. <laughs> That's it for this podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Chris Graney and Brother Guy Consolmagno. I'm Bob Tremblay. You can read posts from all three of us and listen to our other podcasts on the website of the Vatican Observatory. Clear skies, everyone.